Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. I hope you're ready to head into our third week of Dr. Newfeld's series in the Book of Romans entitled, The Heart of the Gospel. Today, Dr. Newfeld will be talking about the downward spiral of immorality. Open your Bibles to Romans 1, verse 24, and let's begin. I find the phrase, ignoring the elephant in the room, to be fascinating. Most of us know what it refers to. We can imagine a group of executives meeting in a room together, perhaps around a board table, and there is a real physical elephant in the room that is causing no end of headaches. But these executives never talk about that elephant. They have seminars on how to stay focused on the tasks at hand. While they are in the boardroom, they make decisions for better and more durable furniture that doesn't break so easily, and they ponder whether they should expand the room to make more space available. But they never talk about the actual elephant that disrupts everything, breaks the furniture, leaves them with no room. For whatever reason, they stop seeing this massive, disruptive, and volatile elephant who is demolishing everything. Uh, The image of ignoring an elephant in the room means we ignore what should be noticeable to everyone. As we read Romans 1, it becomes clear that the elephant in the room is God. The entire human race has been suppressing that which should be patently obvious to everyone. We're not making progress because we're ignoring God. What can be known about God is obvious to everyone, but instead of acknowledging that God is in the room and that we owe to God an infinite debt of gratitude, For he has been caring for us and paying our bills and rescuing us in time of trouble and showing us mercy when we deserve none. Instead of acknowledging this, we deal with everything else except for him. But on we go ignoring what's obvious. But of course, we didn't just ignore the obvious. We did something with the obvious. We exchanged or substituted the truth of God for a lie and worshiped the creature rather than the creator. But here now is a little secret. And perhaps it's not so little after all, and perhaps it's not even a secret. You can't ignore God, suppress the knowledge of God, and be free from consequences. Rejecting or ignoring God just can't be left unchallenged. The elephant will never let you get away with ignoring him. We're about to read Romans chapter 1, 24 to 32, and as we do, I want you to notice that three times in this passage, Paul will repeat a phrase, God gave them up. Last week, we saw that meant that God allowed us to live in a set of circumstances and even bring about a set of circumstances that would highlight what is truly in our hearts. God would let us see how dark, evil, sinful, and destructive our hearts actually are. And this would show how devastating it is when we actually ignore God. So let's read our text. Romans 1, 24 to 32 reads as follows. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see it fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. 
They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Because Paul mentions the phrase, God gave them up, three times in this passage, it's rather easy to divide the passage into three sections, each one following Paul's use of that phrase. But we shouldn't get into the list of human sins without noticing the cause. According to verse 25, whenever we ignore God and then substitute the true God with an idol, consequences must follow. First notice that it's not possible to casually ignore God. Because the human impulse to worship is so strong, so overpowering, it is necessary for those who will not worship the Creator to create some other kind of appropriate object of worship. That may look like an idol in the ancient sense of the word, where a a statue of a man or, or an animal is physically worshiped, bowed before, or it may be a subtler idol that we keep hidden in our mind or heart. But it is this substitute for the true God that becomes our object of devotion and passion. Every human being and every culture constructs idols, and by that I mean substitutes for the one true and living God. One Bible teacher has said that the human heart is an idol factory. I would say that human cultures are as well. Those idols may be money, sex, or power, but those idols, whatever they are, will demand our reverence and our worship. Now, says Paul, let's see what happens to us when we do this. Interestingly enough, in the first two uses of the phrase, God gave them up, Paul speaks about the sexual consequences that come from idolatry. In the first instance, Paul speaks about sexual sin in a very general sense. He uses three words and phrases here. The first is the word lust, then impurity, and then the final phrase, the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Let's look at each one of these in turn. The word lust is not necessarily a sinful word. I know that may seem strange to say, but the Greek word epithumia was once used by Jesus himself to describe, interestingly enough, the word he used at the Last Supper. Sitting with the twelve, he begins his discourse by saying, and I'm literally translating Luke 22:15, where he says, I've earnestly desired or literally lusted to eat this Passover with you. Uh, So the Greek word does not always refer to sexual desire, but it always refers to the strongest inner passion that we have. So Jesus is saying, I am overwhelmed with an urgent inner desire to eat this Passover with you, and this desire in me is so strong that it can't be held back anymore. Wow. But when the word epithumia, or strong desire, is paired with sexual passion, it means the kind of passion that is so all-consuming that mere resolutions or promises to ourselves simply will not overcome the passion within us. This kind of passion will be acted upon. It will dictate our behavior. And here's what Paul is saying. When you abandon the true God, another passion will replace that void in your heart, and it will consume you. And that other passion is most likely to become sexual. Paul is writing this letter from Corinth, where that city, in one temple alone, there were housed more than 1,000 sacred temple prostitutes. Their worship and sex were welded together. Furthermore, as you read through Paul's letters, you're going to notice that on occasion he warns against orgies, a practice common in the ancient world. Perhaps Paul is thinking about that when he writes here. 
He's saying that once you exchange the worship of the true God for a worship of the human figure, the result will be unbridled inner passion that simply becomes all-consuming. Everything becomes sexualized. The second word Paul uses is the word impurity. The word impurity is a word that can also be translated as uncleanness. It carries with it an Old Testament sense in which a person or an object becomes unfit for worship. Here Paul means that an out-of-control sexual urge renders the human body unfit for the presence of God. It is unclean. And then finally, Paul says, our bodies themselves, designed by God, become degraded among ourselves, the idea being that our bodies have been insulted. The amazing thing about fascination with sex is that it finally leaves us with a disgust over sex. And behind all this is the thought that we're no longer masters of our own sexuality. In verse 25, Paul says, they serve the creature rather than the creator. Just like the creator who demands service and worship, so also does the creature. The sexual desires, once God gives us up to them, those same desires now demand our allegiance. We must serve them. We may even feel defiled by how we use our sexuality, but now the sexual urge demands that we serve, that we obey, that we answer to their call. And says Paul, this is how God answers all human beings who ignore him and suppress the necessity of following in worship. He gives us up to this. The second use of the phrase, God gave them up, follows this general description of sexual enslavement to the issue of same-sex attraction. In Paul's words, Women exchange natural relations for that which is contrary to nature, and men do the same, something Paul calls shameless acts. The minute anyone reads these words, one becomes quite aware that the wording, to put it mildly, well, it's absolutely explosive in our culture. The call to be respectful of the rights of all, the acknowledgement of same-sex attraction, the idea that sexual orientation might be a part of our genetic makeup and the need to be sensitive to people who say, I was born that way, has become a bedrock of Western cultural values. And to put it honestly, Christians have not always been sensitive in discussing this issue. So is Paul simply being a hate-filled fundamentalist? Well, we're going to get back to that very vital question when we come back. Romans chapter 1 is an important passage of scripture for us to begin to understand the insidious nature of sin and its destructive impact upon the world around us. Sexual sin and immoral behavior has laid root in our society. It has become commonplace, even encouraged in current artistic mediums. How do we respond? How does Paul respond? Well, Dr. Neufeld will continue on his teaching right after the break. Thanks so much for listening today. You know, here at Back to the Bible, we appreciate our listeners. For the month of February, as a gesture of our gratitude, we'd like to offer to you as a free gift, Dr. John Newfeld's series on Philemon, an alternative lifestyle. I found this series challenged us to live differently as followers of Jesus, to stand out in our culture, in the way we live, and the life choices we make. To get your free copy today, give us a call at 1-800-663-2425. Now, let's go back to the Bible with Dr. Neufeld. To speak as Paul does here in Romans 1, well, many will say this kind of language amounts to hate speech. It singles out one group of people and subjects them to contempt. 
And behind this is the idea that only now in our day and in our culture are we finally becoming aware of just how complex our sexuality actually is. From a fully modernist perspective, reading this seems like reading something from the Dark Ages when our sexuality was repressed and people never really talked about it. But is this really the case? Now, I've made the case that the ancient Roman world was a highly sexualized culture. It was Kent Hughes who pointed out, for instance, that 14 of the 15 first Roman emperors were reported to have openly practiced homosexuality themselves. Any number of sexual practices were not only widely accepted and practiced in the Roman world, they were encouraged at every turn. The Greek and Roman world thought it to be natural and to be celebrated, whereas the Jewish culture, well, there it was universally condemned. If ever there was a clash of values, it was then even more so than now. What do we make of this? A couple of things should be remembered about Paul's treatment of same-sex attraction. First, for Paul, even though both same-sex attraction and acting on that attraction is sinful, it's never considered the ultimate sin. The ultimate sin was a failure to acknowledge God as God and to give thanks to Him. The unpaid debt of appropriate worship far outweighs everything else. If Paul can be accused of hate speech in anything, it's his statement that failure to love the true God brings wrath. And so, just to be clear, Christianity does not say the ultimate sin is homosexuality. It says the ultimate sin is failure to worship. Secondly, When Paul uses the phrase contrary to nature and then the phrase giving up natural relations, he's not referring to sexual orientation at all. I mean, the way we do today. Someone today might say, I have a natural orientation to be sexually attracted to people of the the same sex. But that's not how Paul uses the phrase contrary to nature. For him to speak about nature is the same as speaking of God's design. According to the Bible, God designed our sexuality to be expressed between one man and one woman in a lifetime covenant of marital faithfulness. That's why the Bible tells us to keep the marriage bed pure. This was the Creator's intention from the beginning. Anything else than keeping the marriage bed pure is contrary to nature or contrary to the Creator's design. So if you want, let's make a list of all the sexual things contrary to nature in the way that Paul uses the phrase. Sex before marriage of two dating or engaged people is contrary to nature. Adultery is contrary to nature. Pornography is contrary to nature. Casual sex is contrary to nature. Sexual fondling outside of marriage is contrary to nature. Lusting in one's heart is contrary to nature. Homosexuality is contrary to nature. Sexual foreplay between unmarried people is contrary to nature. Flirting with your office colleague is contrary to nature. Fantasizing about someone else while making love to your own spouse is contrary to nature. I hope you see what he means. And I don't mean to belabor the point, but I do seek to emphasize it. And someone might say, but what I do and feel about my sexuality feels so natural. Well, true, that it does. But Paul would say, but it violates the Creator's design. Just like running your car without oil violates the manufacturer's specifications for your vehicle, so this violates what the Creator of our bodies has designed it for. And in the case of our Creator, the one who designed our bodies, He's not only designed our bodies, but He says He has not given up His ownership of our bodies. 
sort of the one who says, but it's my body. The creator says, no, your body belongs to me. He alone has the right to dictate how our bodies should be used. But someone might protest. I mean, why does Paul pick on same-sex attraction and same-sex actions when he could have picked on any number of other sexual sins? Why call this one a dishonorable passion when there are, in fact, so many other dishonorable passions as well? Of course, we can't say for certain why Paul chose one example over the other, but I do think there is an answer to our question. You know, same-sex attraction was one common and widespread example of what he's talking about. It was an excellent example of the general principle he laid down in the earlier part of this passage. And if you're feeling smug and even condemning of those in the homosexual community and yet harboring heterosexual sins in your own heart, well, listen, the same principle applies. Nothing changes. That's why Christians shouldn't and can't hate or even be disrespectful to those in the homosexual community, for we all stand equally broken in our sexuality before God. All of our sexual expressions that feel so right and so part of us have become unnatural in that they reflect what has become broken after the fall. But Paul's still not done. He's hardly satisfied by saying that God in wrath gives people up to sexually dishonoring of their bodies. And so now for the third time, Paul uses the phrase again, God gave them up. And that's found in verse 28. But now giving up is not sexual desires, but now it's to a debased mind. The word debased is a fascinating word because in the Greek world, the word was used of coins that were substandard. They didn't meet the grade and were thus rejected. Just like our bodies that didn't make the grade, Paul now wants to say it's the same way with our minds. And what follows now are a series of 21 separate sins of the mind. Bible teachers often call this list found in verses 29 to 31 the list of vices. It's possible to break this list into three separate categories. The first list contains four vices, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. These are four general terms, just like Paul began by describing sexual sins generally and then gave one concrete example. So in this case, he describes the evil mind generally. It's a mind whose focus is on those things that God has called sin, wrong, forbidden. Having ignored the mind's need to find fulfillment in God, the mind is not satisfied in a vacuum. Willful evil follows. The second list contains five items. They include envy, murder, strife, deceit, and maliciousness. That list contains the basic building blocks of the self-centered life. This is the person who pursues his or her own desires, regardless of the impact on others. That may begin with envy, but it begins to grow. Lying or deceit follows, then malicious, harmful behavior, and then even murder. Now comes Paul's third and last list, the longest, containing 12 vices. Paul begins this list with gossip and slander, and then ends with the individual who is utterly ruthless. Along the way, he includes such things as the man who not only follows evil, but invents it who deep in his heart hates the true God. Now, some people reading this part of Romans just object. They object for two reasons. The first reason is that this is not a true description of the human race without Christ. People also act mercifully, philanthropically. They display manners. They they work at what's good. And to be fair to Paul, he admits that. In chapter 2, 14 to 15, he speaks of Gentiles who don't know God, sometimes acting in a way that God's law requires them to act. In other words, sometimes they act virtuously. Paul says so. But here in the end of chapter 1, he wants to say that in spite of that, 
There are always some baser elements that work in everyone, and furthermore, these baser elements find expression because God has chosen not to restrain them, but to give expression so we might be shocked by who we truly are. But here's the second criticism. This seems so hopeless. But notice how Paul ends this passage. He says, not only do we all do these things, we give approval to those who do them. Think of an event in the life of Paul. He was a Pharisee and also witnessed the stoning of Stephen, the first Christian martyr. What was his role? Acts 8.1 says, he gave approval. And when we read that, it should give hope for all of us. By giving us up to these sins, we're not saying that God is now abandoning us and letting us die in our sins. Rather, in loving mercy, if we're willing to pay attention, God allows us over and over again to see how depraved that we actually are so that, if possible, we might say, God, would you save someone like me? And the answer from Romans is, yes, it's possible. John, thanks for covering some interesting territory for us. One of the words that kept coming up as you were speaking was this term broken. Now, is that the very best way to describe what's happened in our relationship to God in the fall? Yeah, I think the fall is, uh, is characterized in a number of ways, and we ought to look for words that everyone can understand. Broken is one of them. I think another way of describing the fall is that on this side of the sin of Adam, nothing works the way it should. I mean, our bodies don't. They break down in the end and they die. But our desires don't function the way that they were intended to function. And neither does our thinking and neither does so much else. Nothing in this world that we have, I mean, yes, this world does give us an example of what should be, but it never quite works out the way it should. That's why so many of us are disappointed with life because it's broken, Ben. And, and I think that's what the fall wants to communicate to us. So when we talk about, and you said at the very end of the message, it is possible, what's possible? It's possible to find Jesus as our savior, but also as our regenerator. It's possible to get a new heart. It's possible to get new desires. It's possible to be changed by the one who made us in the first place. I think that's the hope that we're supposed to grab hold to when we study the book of Romans and when we think about the gospel. Thanks, John. We look forward to tomorrow as we continue to study the book of Romans. I hope Dr. Newfeld's teaching has challenged you today. He's left us with much to think about in regard to where we stand as a follower of Jesus and if we're glorifying God in every aspect of our lives, our thoughts, and our deeds. But we're also reminded of the promise of forgiveness and restoration. Yes, it is possible. Join us tomorrow as Dr. Neufeld teaches on Romans chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. God's word to basically good people. That's tomorrow, right here on Back to the Bible Canada. March 22nd to the 29th, we'll be embarking on the second annual Back to the Bible Laugh Again cruise. Last year, we had a blast on the cruise. There are times available for morning devotions, ladies and youth events, time to explore, and also plenty of time for spiritual refreshment, inspiration, fellowship, worship, and laughter. Join myself, Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Again's own Phil Calloway, and other special ministry and musical guests. Time is running out to register for this fun-filled event, so don't miss out. 
To register today or find out more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day.